When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So before we get started with today's episode, Jess and I just wanted to let you know that if you are interested in trying audiobooks or have been eyeing an Audible membership, you can get two free audiobooks when you sign up for a free trial at bookriot.com slash audible. Most free trial offers for Audible only give you one download with your 30-day trial, but we are giving you two. Audiobooks are a great way to work in more reading into your life, whether it's during your commute, while you're cooking, while you're at the gym, knitting, you know, whatever. So go to bookriot.com slash audible to sign up for your free trial and get two free audiobooks. That is bookriot.com slash audible. Hello and welcome back to When in Romance, everyone's, well, my and Trisha's favorite place to talk about romance and romantic things and people who write romance, sometimes when they do naughty things, um, <laughs> and the, not the good kind of naughty. <laughs> yeah, that could mean a lot of things, Jess. <laughs> Both the good and bad kind of naughty. I am Jess. And I am Trisha. And I think actually today, in today's episode, we might be getting into both the bad and the good kind of naughty. I think we are. I think we're getting into the good, bad, and super bananas. <laughs> I don't even know. Yeah, we maybe, maybe we might have to launch right into it. We had like two minutes set aside in our agenda because as you all know, we're working really hard to keep on time uh, mm-hmm. for an introduction, but I don't even know we if we need it. We might have to just jump into the crazy banana pants story of the week and possibly the year. Possibly the year. This might be the 2019 version of Cocky Gate. That is, yeah, someone tweeted that at us, actually. Um, and we had just started to see this just very unusual this story unfold. I, so I don't know. We're, we're probably teasing it over um, over necessarily. That might not be a word. Let's stick with it. <laughs> we're going to make it a word. Um, all right, Jess. Tell people what we're talking about, because I have to be honest, I've had a little bit of a chaotic week. So I was just kind of getting caught up on this before, you know, throughout the evening, um, we're recording on the 21st of February. And I was just sort of reading through this. I'm still not sure I have a, I think I know what happened. I don't know. What What can you tell us? So uh, just a few days ago, like Trisha said, we're recording on the 21st. Um, Courtney Milan went on Twitter and said, it's time to name and shame. Someone had reached out to her and told her that a romance author who um, self-publishes named Cristiana Ceruya, who I believe is from Brazil, had plagiarized her almost word for word, taking full passages out of the Duchess War, or at least one full passage out of the Duchess War. And Courtney posted a side-by-side and was like, what is this? Um, So that was the beginning. And then people started 
digging deeper and seeing more and more familiar passages, not just from Courtney, but from other authors as well. Christy Caldwell was finding things of hers. And um, just, I think by the time I, I last looked at it on Wednesday morning, it was at 30 authors and 26 books, I want to say. Um, because, you know, authors co-write, that's a thing that happens. And so uh, the next morning, uh, Christiana on Twitter said, I just woke up to this news that I apparently plagiarized. I wouldn't do this on purpose maliciously. Um, and eventually it came down to, yeah, the ghostwriters that I hired to write my books did it, which people hire ghostwriters. That's a thing. Whatever. Don't blame them if you published something that wasn't yours. Um, and then it turns out that the editor of Royal Love, which is the primary book that people were focusing on, contacted Courtney and said, you know, I apologize for whatever has happened here. She sent this to me and needed a quick turnaround. It was early in my career, and I just wanted to make sure that all the I's were dotted and T's were crossed. So she was working at a high pace and didn't catch anything either. And we're not going to blame her for that because in the end, it comes down to Christiana Surya. Um, There are other rumors about this person's identity going around, but I'm just going to call her Christiana Surya. Just like not making bad choices. Let's just call it that. Making bad choices. And I haven't looked at all of the legal information um there was another bonkers event where all of her books were listed on a takedown notice site and i don't know if she herself did it there's so much bonkers stuff happening and it's still happening and i can't keep track well and i think so the takedown site issue is related to either she or someone else i think was accusing other people of plagiarizing her books which is a very strange wrinkle. And then it turns out that she had not only nominated, well, she or someone had nominated her for Rita Awards, which as we've discussed oh, in the Rita. past is like the Romance Literary Award. And also she was judging. Oh, heavens. I mean, to to their credit, RWA has said, we are aware of what's going on. Um, we are investigating and also any books that have been assigned to her for judging will be reassigned so they are certainly you know taking care of their side of this mm-hmm. but the, wow so one of the points that um and carolina who is our uh friend and colleague at book riot did actually what i found to be a very helpful write-up of this completely bonkers story quite Yes. And one of the things that she pointed out that uh, Courtney Milan's um, blog post, which is worth taking a look at for a few reasons that I'll mention in a minute, but um, she kind of said, listen, I don't want to be this person, but also what are you doing? Like maybe if (laughs) I don't want to, like if I think, so I'm reading it directly from her site. If I were an unethical plagiarist and I was looking to plagiarize a romance author, I would pick literally anyone except the one who clerked for the Supreme Court, taught intellectual property as a law professor and doesn't back down from a fight. Right. Follow me on Twitter, Christian. How stupid can you get? End quote. Um, So that (laughs) is, I think a very, it's, I mean, at the same time, if, 
she's plagiarizing 30 different authors or someone plagiarized them on her behalf. I don't know. Because there was also, like Jess said, there was also some chat from people who had been maybe approached to be ghostwriters for her who sort of said it seemed odd. That's kind of getting more into the rumory stuff that we probably just, you know, for the sake of being uh, fair, should, should shy away from. But mm-hmm. but you are absolutely correct, Jessen, that a lot of pieces of this don't add up. And even the ones that we have very clear evidence of, because the other thing that you will see on Courtney's post is a lot of very clear places where word for word, I mean, multiple four or five, six senses at a time are just completely mm-hmm. lifted and copied. So this is not we you know, we talked last year about a different possible plagiarism issue where it was similar themes and similar plot events and names and those kinds of things. And it was a little like this maybe happened. It maybe it's hard to say for sure that it did. It that one was a little unclear. This one is very legitimately clear. word for word. Mm-hmm. And then like Sarah McLean and Tessa Dare found passages that were identical to their own. It's like you pick some of the most vocal, most popular, well-read authors who were going to recognize their own words. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah, Courtney uh, Milan made that point too. She said, I've, hold, I've sold hundreds of thousands of copies of this book and given away hundreds of thousands of copies of this book. People are going to know, like they're going to, mm-hmm. they're going to see it and recognize it. And I will say, I mean, I think for me, one of my initial reactions was kind of an eye rolling, like, "Ugh, that's so dumb. I'm glad this person got caught. I kind of, I didn't want to be, you know, dismissive in any way, but I think I sort of thought, well, this sucks, but that's the way it goes. Mm-hmm. But then when I actually did read um, the, another reason that I think uh, Courtney Milan's um, blog post is worth reading is that she makes the point in a couple of places, um, including one where she talks, and we've talked about the Duchess War. I've, I am on record as saying it is one of my favorite romances, if not my favorite, um, out there. And Courtney talks about the fact that she lifts these passages about Robert, who's the hero's um, longing to have family and to be a part of his brother's family, his half-brother's family. And it's a theme that goes throughout. And she mentions, you know, it meant a lot to me to write that and just have somebody lift it and take it out of the careful context in which she had placed it and the really thoughtful and intentional way that she had. And you can tell, if you read this book, you can tell that a lot of heart and energy and thoughtfulness went into it. And it's, I think for me, it was good to be reminded, it was unfortunate, but good to be reminded that this work really does mean that to people. This is not just a job. When you are creating art, there's a lot of yourself that goes into something. And seeing someone lifted in that way in such a sort of callous and careless way is that there's actually real impact to that that maybe is not as quantifiable as number of books sold mm-hmm. absolutely one thing that stood out to me like i mentioned christy caldwell because i looked at one of her tweets almost like minutes before we started recording and uh, um i remember yesterday or the day before when she discovered that her writing had been picked up like the pain just expressed in words that she had felt and put down in in some of her earliest writing that she had put so much of herself into were just lifted and and taken away without any thought to the original producer of those words so it's just like it's painful to see 
In any context. I mean, if I were in school and saw that someone had copied my paper, it would it would cause a similar kind of pain. But there's also the whole thing about someone producing your work, Frankensteining it together or Frankenmonstering it or whatever, whichever person you want to yeah. give it to. Oh, yeah. We had that. Yeah. <laughs> it's, not, it's Frankenstein monstering as a folk because as all of you literary folks will know, Frankenstein is not the monster. It's Dr. Frankenstein. We had this uh, discussion on Slack earlier this week and someone called it Frankensteining and then had to correct themselves and call it Frankenstein monstering. Although really, it's like, Christiana would be the Frankenstein in that situation because Frankenstein really is the monster. Ha ha. Um. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Who is the Frankenstein in this situation is a question we should probably all be asking ourselves more often. <laughs> and then producing it as their own work and selling it and, you know, getting the numbers, the clicks and pages, page reads in Kindle Unlimited. And all of that, and using other people's words to for their own gain. So it's a little different than you know somebody copying your your paper in college or whatever. But it's painful, and uh, you know there were other conversations that built out of this about how it's not uncommon, um, it's not rampant, obviously, because I feel like we'd know, but. There's lots of people who do this, or there are people who do this. And, okay, that's good to know. I want to know who they are, because I want to call them out the same way that Christiana Surya got called out. I I want to know every shady, dirty person in this business so that I can help them not be supported. Yeah, and I think there's also the degree to which it's worth noting that it hurts in some ways, it hurts the reputation of the larger romance community, or certainly doesn't help it when someone mm -hmm. thinks that these books are so disposable, which of course, you and I know they are not. But when someone thinks that someone's work is so disposable, that no one will notice if it's copied and pasted that, you know, these books are so formulaic or for so whatever that the words of the work doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. I think that hurts the community on the whole. Absolutely. And so I think that's another kind of unfortunate side effect of this whole thing. So I think I will, I mean, I will confess when I first saw this story, I sort of thought, oh, man, like this is bananas. Now we get to like, talk about this on the podcast. I almost kind of, uh, I was a little bit more dismissive of it than I probably should have been. And thinking more about sort of the larger implications of it has been a helpful exercise for me as I kind of think through what the larger implications of it are. Absolutely. I mean, you're not a real romance author if you think that you can do that. And, uh, you know, one thing, one good thing that has come out of this is um, the T-shirt that I plan on buying in a couple hours that has a quote from the great author, Miss Beverly Jenkins, um, from a few days ago. I guess it was probably Wednesday. Yes, Wednesday. So the shirt was produced by this morning. It was great. The suspense is killing me, Jess. What does the shirt say? <laughs> it says, Romance Landia, fierce sword wielding bitches. And it came from a quote um, from Beverly Jenkins that I cannot find. <laughs> well, we'll take your word for it. Well, if you find it, we will link to it in the show notes. Absolutely. And, um, you know, she was reacting to, you know, the concept that 
everybody just came out. Okay, so the the tweet says, it always amuses me when, when we drag people to hell, how shocked people are outside our community. I guess they equate romance writers with being mild-mannered and meek, not the fierce, sword-wielding bitches we can be. So I'm sorry that I've said bitch three times now. Um, that's the last one, I swear. But Pretty sure we're still going to have to mark this one explicit, but that's fine. <laughs> Is that really? Okay, fine. I'm sorry. You know what? It Maybe it makes this more interesting. We don't know. <laughs> also, if you're quoting Beverly Jenkins, I feel like you're probably not going wrong. So, Absolutely not. So now, then somebody was like, that, that should be on a t-shirt. And then somebody made the t-shirt. So that is the good thing that has come out of this. So we will link to the t-shirt and all of you can own it also. <laughs> and I can't think of a better way to wrap up this completely bonkers story than with <laughs> a quote from Beverly Jenkins that is leading us down the path of an explicit podcast and is also related to a t-shirt that you can all link to in the show notes and buy that feels like the right way to go out absolutely well done i would not have had that in me jess congratulations (laughs) i do what i can all right well now that we have put a, a tidy bow on that one Yep, now we're smiling again. Exactly, (laughs) here we are. It all comes back around. All right, you want to do an ad spot? Absolutely. When in Romance is brought to you by New Year, New Reads, a project of Mira Books and HQN. A resolution you can keep past February? Yes, please. Harlequin and their blockbuster series authors have got you covered with many ways to start your New Year, New Reads marathon reading. Mira Books and HQN are home to women's fiction and romance series you can fall in love with. Start your New Year's new reads of marathon reading today. If you feel like losing yourself in a series from start to finish, you can fall in love with series by Christina Dodd, Cheryl Woods, Robin Carr, Jude Devereaux, Heather Graham, and more. Uh, check them out at Harlequin Books on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. All one word, Harlequin Books. No underscores, no dashes, or anything else. So that is, again, New Year, New Reads. Yay. Once again, I'm glad that they sponsored the show and also glad that you had to say that multiple times and not me. <laughs> I do what I can. Uh-huh. Indeed. Indeed, you do. And you do it well. So uh, we, as you all know, hopefully, we our original <laughs> plan for this episode, and it was and continues to be, uh, our latest installment of the When in Romance Book Club. Uh, which this week is focused on Thirsty by Mia Hopkins. And Jess, you read this book more recently than I did. I was revisiting it a little bit in the last couple of days. But for in terms of start to finish reading, you have read it more recently. Do you want to do a kind of a rundown of it? Sure. So in this book, um, we are introduced to Sal. And he is actually the narrator of the book. So this is the first time I have read a book narrated by a recently released gangster. Um, So that was exciting. And he, um, when we meet him, he is losing the place where he sleeps because his BFF is being kicked out of the house that he lives in with his family. So Sal is sort of stuck and uh, ends up being invited to live in the garage of a local abuela. And uh, she's cool with it. He's cool with it. He'll do some light cleaning and just, you know, be quiet and try to get his life together, save up some money to get his own place. But her granddaughter 
isn't so much cool with it. And Vanessa is a young woman with a young daughter and uh, is, you know, she's a money person and she is very much not with the gang and doesn't want anything related to the neighborhood gang associated with her or her kid or her house. But her grandmother talks her into just giving it a try. So Sal is going to live in their garage for two months until he saves up money to get his own place. And he is, you know, he went to jail five years ago for being for um, Grand Theft Auto. And he knows that he can't really leave the gang life, but he's doing his best to not really get back into it as as slowly as possible. Um, He's working legit jobs and doing what he can to save up money in part so that his younger brother can live with him when he gets out of jail because they went to jail together, basically. But then there's also this thing with Vanessa. Like, she is very attractive and he is very into her. And you kind of guess that she doesn't find him unattractive, but he was in the gang. So, like, it's not like she wants that around her. But eventually... But eventually what? What, Jess? They never, ever speak and then the book ends? Is that how it They goes? never speak and then the book ends. That's the perfect book. <laughs> Sal figures out his and life. goes in his merry way. <laughs> and Vanessa moves on. <laughs> And nothing else happens. Uh, no, uh, <laughs> that that's a very different book. But, you know, they they act on their attraction and it's like, all right, well, you're hot. I'm hot. hot we're hot together. Let's do this for two months. And then you're going to leave and I never have to see you again. Because that's always how that works. Uh, that's that's a story for another genre. That's uh, <laughs> That's not how it works here. No, no, it's not. But yeah, no, I think that's a, I think that's an excellent catching people up summary. Um, Hopefully you all read it, but if you didn't get a chance. Um, And I actually noticed the same thing that you did, Jess, that the male point of view, specifically the exclusively male point of view, because I feel like there are some books that trade that there's an uh, alternating uh, POV, but this one was all Sal, which is not super common in romance. Uh, And I thought... It was very well done. Mm-hmm. I am not male, so I could be wrong about that. But um, I thought it was very well done and also added kind of a – it added something sort of specific to the dynamic that I think would have been missing if the book was narrated from Vanessa's perspective. Absolutely. Absolutely. We we like get really deep into Sal's mind and the fact that he has no clue what's going on in Vanessa's. And uh, like Sal is, thank you for introducing this book to me, Trisha. Sal is just the best. Like he's messy and he's growing and he's open to learning new things. Like if you were wondering, like I was until almost the end of this book, why the series is called Eastside Brewery, it's because Sal develops an interest in brewing beer. And that's another thing that, and I would be interested to hear what other folks thought of this. That was another thing that I thought was very well done. There were a couple of formatting things that I thought um, Mia Hopkins did really well. And one of the kind of storytelling things that I thought that she did well was there uh, is a a guy that uh, Sal finds who happens to brew beer and who kind of takes Sal under his wing. And he's a, a white guy, this white guy, Alan, who is brewing beer. And it seems like it's sort of a, uh, and it is sort of this 
hipster LA thing to do. Um, <laughs> but there is another um, white male sort of uh, character in power named Barry, who's the manager or owner or something at the gym where Sal does uh, custodial work in at night. He works a night shift there to do the cleanup and then he's allowed to, you know, work out for free and whatever. Um, and that guy is the worst. Like that guy mm-hmm. is the he wants Sal to be a trainer specifically because of how uh you know, like ripped he got in prison. Like he thinks it'll mm-hmm. it will draw a very specific clientele. But this guy Barry also thinks that he's doing Sal a real favor by offering him this this impressive job. And I think the way that you can kind of compare those two characters is a good reminder of wow some people are the worst but you know it's nice that alan did this thing and took him under his wing i don't know i think i just it it felt like a more it felt like it had multiple dimensions the world in which sal is living and operating absolutely like all of the supporting characters like are are real people and it's really nice to see that even even the people that we don't want sal to get mixed up in like they they have their own purpose and their own reasons for doing the things that they do even if it is because i am a crazy mofo um and (laughs) and it's it's really that was really nice to see from sal's perspective because he kind of like why isn't sal a real person like he's like he feels every single person that he encounters like in certain ways it's like he gets a feeling for them and he knows what they're like and he sees their reasoning, even if it's bad reasoning. Yeah. And I also thought another aspect of this book that really came through for me that is even, I think, frankly, more rare than the male point of view is the fact that both Sal and Vanessa struggle with money. Mm-hmm. Sal really legitimately, uh, when he is gets, you know, when he gets kind of kicked out of the house where he's been staying on the couch... He was planning to go sleep in the park because he's done it before. That's the way it goes. And you, when he ends up paying the uh, abuela, the the grandmother he's staying with, when he pays her the cash that he has, it leaves him with $10 for the next three days. And that's just kind of the reality of his world. He is, you know, trying to save up. He's figuring it out. Um, And Vanessa has a job. She has a good job and she's really good at it, but it's, it's not a good enough job to sort of lift her family out of I mean I think you could say working class but frankly I think probably they're living close to or below the poverty line it's not very clear but either way nobody there's no duchesses in this book right like no one's a billionaire <laughs> nobody randomly happens to collect a windfall of millions of dollars that means that they don't ever have to worry about money again I mean they the book ends in in such a way that people do have opportunities open to them which is Great, but again, neither of them. Not, the opportunities are not lottery tickets; they're just opportunities to do uh, something a little different. And I thought there was actually some conversation on um, Twitter this weekend about you know why we write romance or why people who write romance write it such that people won't have to worry about financial security anymore and all of that. And there were also some really good counterpoints about how the reality for a lot of us is that you don't. That's not the case. You do have to struggle um maybe not to the extent that Sal and Dennis are struggling but i don't know i thought that was just a like i said it's it's not common to find that in a in a romance and i i really appreciated that about this book yeah that was nice that like they were very much like working class people and 
blue or white collar kind of striped collar kind of way with Vanessa and it's it was refreshing to see that in in a like real tender romance novel yeah well and I think that's the thing I think we're used to people not having to struggle in that way in romance and the fact that it's it's a good reminder that romance is for everyone right romance is for people who are struggling or happy ever afters I, I should say are for everyone they're for people who are struggling financially and people who do end up with a windfall they're for people who are convicted felons and also people who are trying to love the convicted felons you know i mean it, it's a good reminder that like i said happy ever afters uh, are as you have said more than once on this show jess happy ever afters are for everyone as long as you're not evil. as long as you're not evil an important caveat <laughs> at least one other thing that i'll say about this book too that really struck me about it as i was reading were the details i think details can really connect people to a story in um in kind of interesting and unique ways and the one that really stuck out for me that i even remember now having read the book a while back um is vanessa's painting her young daughters i can't even remember how old her daughter is three or four or something like that maybe five um but she's painting her fingernails and when she's trying to dry them, she whistles the spoonful of sugar song on her daughter's fingernails, which is the kind of detail that you can see exactly what that looks like. You can see exactly in that moment what kind of a mom Vanessa is. And, you know, it's I think those kinds of little things tell you a lot about the characters that you're working with and talking about. And um, I, I really appreciated the way that uh, Mia Hopkins did that all through this book. Absolutely. And I guess the 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 last thing that I'll I'll talk about um that I took away from this, I actually had really similar feelings toward the end of this book that I did towards Intercepted. And I thought that they actually went really well together because Sal and Marley are kind of in similar situations where they're trying to figure their lives out after getting out of an unhealthy relationship. And Marley's was with a person, but Sal's is with the gang. Like he that's his family like his dad was in it his siblings have been involved in it everything that he knows is part of that gang so figuring himself out after that kind of unhealthy relationship is different from breaking up with someone and the way that he figures his own thing out he discovers himself kind of um really really stood out to me and you know he still has issues but he's trying and he he is willing to acknowledge the shortcomings that he has and try to fix them and so this story is as much about sal's growth as a human being as it is about his love for vanessa which is amazing um there's just like so much feeling in this book. I like my heart was getting twisted and untwisted and twisted and untwisted like over and over and over again. Yeah, and I uh the it, I think I mentioned before we picked this book that it doesn't end on a cliffhanger for the couple, but it ends on a cliffhanger for the larger story. So no no pressure to Mia Hopkins, but if she wanted to put that story out, that would be fine and we would be happy to read it and you know maybe talk about it here on when in romance so absolutely oh and the other thing that i will mention that i probably i kind of forgot a little bit that i probably should have mentioned before we directed you all to this book it is very steamy 
Uh, <laughs> I kind of forgot that until I read uh, Jess's issue of Kissing Books where she talked about it. I was like, oh, oh, yeah. Oh, actually, yeah. This mm, this may actually even be a little bit of an erotic romance in some scenes. <laughs> so hopefully you all enjoyed that fun bonus that I did not warn you about. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you're welcome. <laughs> Thanks, Trisha. Hey, you know, uh, I'm glad that we all, uh, uh, I'm glad that we all got to read this together. If you have thoughts or um, any kind of ideas or suggestions or things that uh, we didn't talk about that really struck you about this book, please don't hesitate to let us know. Absolutely. And speaking of speaking of books, as we often do here <laughs> on the One in Romance podcast, uh, I would like to uh, talk to you about a book, uh, specifically The Devil's Daughter by Lisa Klepis, who uh, is our next sponsor and our final sponsor for this episode. So many of you, I know a lot of you are uh, very excited about this book because I have seen all of the excitement on Twitter. <laughs> Wes Ravenel uh, is a man with a tarnished past. No apologies, no excuses. However, from the moment he meets Phoebe, Lady Claire, he is consumed by irresistible desire. What West doesn't bargain on is that Phoebe is no straight-laced ar- aristocratic lady. I think I pronounced that wrong, but you guys know what I mean. She's the daughter <laughs> of a strong-willed wallflower who long ago eloped with the most del- devilishly wicked rake in England. I worried so much about getting the names right that I didn't think to make sure I could pronounce devilishly. Uh, before long, Phoebe sets out to seduce the man who has awakened her fiery nature and shown her unimaginable pleasure. Will their overwhelming passion be enough to overcome the obstacles of the past? Only the devil's daughter knows. So this is uh, two series, the Ravenels and the Wallflowers series from Lisa Klepis that are crossing over in the latest novel from Lisa Klepis. Uh, so we're featuring Sebastian, Lord St. Vincent's fiery daughter. I think I maybe got that well, that's what it says. I think that's probably right. But we have enemies to lovers <laughs> tropes. Uh, Phoebe knows that West is a mean, rotten bully. There's a lot going on here. She meets the stashing, charming stranger at a family wedding. She's shocked to discover it's the man she swore to hate. So I feel like there's an enemies to lover element here, which we've, we've talked about already. So anyway, uh, like I said, I know a lot of you are excited about this crossover. These books from Lisa Klepis are wildly popular, um, I would say. In, for, for a lot of people, modern canon uh, and romance. So make sure you check it out. Uh, let us know what you think. The Devil's Daughter by Lisa Klepis. Uh, and yeah, many thanks to them for sponsoring the show. Yes, thank you. I look forward to reading that. Well, as do I. I actually, I have to admit, I'm a little bit behind, partly because I'm a little intimidated in that people love these Lisa Klepis books so much that I'm pretty sure once I start, I will only read that for like the next month. So, you know. It's definitely a possibility. I will admit I am actually so far behind that I am like three books behind in this particular series. And I don't care because I want to read that one. (laughs) I say do it. You get to do what you want, Jess. You're a grown up. I am. And speaking of being a grown up, it's not, it's not, that's a terrible transition. It doesn't make any sense. (laughs) But speaking of great ideas. When we were talking about go. which books to recommend this week, uh, you had the brilliant idea because I had suggested that maybe we could recommend some of the um, – uh, I have – I just recently wrote a, a piece for Book Riot about different read harder recommendations for the category of uh, historical romance written by an author of color. And I thought, you know, do we want to do that or something like that? And you had the brilliant idea that 
why don't we just generally recommend read harder books or books that fit the different categories? And I know from our discussion pre-show that you have more than I do. So maybe you should kick us off. Okay. Um, so I was looking at the op- the tasks for Read Harder, and I definitely saw some places where I could read romances instead of books that don't have happily ever afters. Um, for example, I looked at an epistolary novel and was like, well, is this the year I finally read uh, Dangerous Liaisons? And I was like, nah. Um, I'll just watch Cruel Intentions. And <laughs> And the um, the older few movies um, that are based on dangerous liaisons. But anyway, that's another story for another day. Um, there are two epistolary novels that I think are pretty good to cover this category. One is definitely a romance. The other is a romance that is disguised as women's fiction. So they are... The first is Thrall by Avangale and Roan Parrish. It is a retelling of Dracula, but it is a modern story in which the supernatural may or may not exist. So it's kind of fun. And it, it's told from several perspectives in letters, in stories, in texts, in IMs, in group chats, and in podcast transcripts. Um, because two of the main characters are um true crime podcasters talking about things happening that could or could not have been supernatural in New Orleans. So there's that. It's all great, it's wonderful, it's lovely, it's thrall. Um, the other is The Boy Next Door by Meg Cabot. And there I th- there are, I think, four of those. So you could go ahead and easily marathon that series because they are quick reads. And the- they are basically told mostly in emails, sometimes some IM chats or um, texts. Um, and they are a few different people's stories that are vaguely interlinked. And the first one is hilarious because the people who are sending each other emails don't know that they are the people they're sending emails to. Um, So, and it's Meg Cabot. And as you know, she just writes delightful contemporary stories. Um, So try that one out. The Boy Next Door. Excellent. So I, my first rec actually is a um, historical romance by an author of color. And I included that on this list in addition to including it in the list I did for Book Riot, partly because I think of all of the books that I put on the list online, this is the one that might be best suited to romance readers. Um, And that is My Beautiful Enemy by Sherry Thomas, who you might know from the Lady Sherlock series, um, which starts with uh, A Study in Scarlet Women, um, which has been very big for her for the last few years. But before she did that, she did um, My Beautiful Enemy, which is actually the reason I think it might be best suited for romance readers is that it's actually a duology. So you can read My Beautiful Enemy by itself. But um, Hidden Blade is the prequel to this particular book, and it will give you a little bit more background. Um, but for My Beautiful Enemy, there's, I mean, man, if you read Cherry Thomas, you know that she writes really fantastic prose. She almost kind of, the way I sort of think about her is, and I mean this in, in the very best way, she kind of makes you work for it. Like you can't <laughs> necessarily read a book of hers 
like you wouldn't do it like while you're watching TV or while you're, you know, you might be able to do it like at the gym or something. But you, you, you kind of have to focus because she's a writer who writes with a lot of depth and she trusts that her readers, I think, are going to engage with what she's doing because she writes with really fantastic detail. Um, the story of this book is that uh, the character, uh, Catherine Blade, who we meet by a different name in the prequel, um, is trying to find these pieces of jade that will essentially, um, for reasons that are really fascinating and, and better laid out in the book, essentially point her to a hidden treasure. So looking for a hidden treasure, obviously. Um, also, she's kind of like a secret assassin. So that's pretty <laughs> great. Um, and she encounters uh, Leeton, who is a British spy. He's kind of just going about his business and going about his day-to-day slash life slash engagement to someone else. And then they meet up. And as it turns out, they have known each other before and sort of had a very intense kind of pledging their lives to each other situation um, seven, eight or so years before, hadn't seen each other at all. And that all happened in, you know, um, in Asia, uh, like it was a whole other place. And now they're in England and they happen to meet up. And so the book jumps back and forth in time to explain what that relationship was before. So like I said, you can read My Beautiful Enemy by itself. But if you uh, if you know you like romance, if you are a fan of Sherry Thomas's series um, or historical romance generally, it's worth reading um, Hidden Blade first, the Hidden Blade first, because it will give you some background about how both of those people came to be um, who they are. And uh, and it's I think it's worth um, getting into. Uh, the one thing I will say about this, and I said this in the book Riot Post also, a quick content warning. This book in absolutely no way condones violence uh, against vulnerable populations, but it does include some of that. So both of these books... If that's not a thing that is, you know, something that you can or are able to read, then maybe read one of the other wonderful books that Jess has recommended already. Speaking of wonderful books Jess has recommended. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, too, have a historical romance by an author of color, and it is also kind of one that is not a typical historical romance. It's called Behind These Doors by Jude Lucens, and is actually um, an Edwardian story. It takes place in the early 20th century um, in the UK, and it is about, it centers on a couple, but there's also other people involved. I'll tell you why. So Aubrey is the one in the middle of things. He is um, upper middle class, you know, he doesn't have to work for a living, and he you know, he lives his life. He, you know, takes six months to write things that are only a few pages because he has to get it perfect and, you know, dabbles here and there. And he is in a relationship with Lord and Lady Herondale. And they are, they have all loved each other since they were kids. But Aubrey meets Lucian, who is a middle-class journalist. He grew up in service, actually, and has decided to go into trade, well, and become a journalist, instead of working in service, even though his parents still work in service and are pretty well off in that. And they have an immediate connection. And they think that maybe it'll just be, you know, a one-night stand, and it Lord and Lady Herondale have both encouraged him to go pursue this guy. 
but there's a bigger connection there. And so the majority of the story is these four people trying to figure out their all of their relationships. And it's really interesting because, you know, it's great to see an Edwardian story that is of the era of wild and completely queer. And also includes people of different classes and different races. None of these four are anything other than white, but there are other supporting characters who are. And also, this is the first time I've read a book featuring polyamorous relationships that include metamors. Um, And if you're unfamiliar with the term, those are the people who are both in relationships with the same person, but not with each other. Um, So in this situation, it's Aubrey with his main couple and Aubrey and Lucian and this is not a puppy pile let's all get together kind of story so it's it's a really quiet kind of people figuring themselves out kind of story and it's really great and that's once again Behind These Doors by Jude Lucens and this one as well as Thrall and the next one that I'm going to recommend are all actually books with less than 100 reviews on Goodreads, too. So you can oh, nice. check things off in other places. Well, why don't you recommend that other one that you were going to talk about, Jess? Okay. Um, this is a book by a trans author. Um, and um, if you read Cussing Books, you've heard me talk about it before. But whatever, I don't care. I'm going to tell you about it again. Um, and that is The Craft of Love by E.E. E. Ottoman. And it only has 28 reviews on Goodreads, so I'm going to try my best to actually go and actually write something about it, because I'm really bad at that. I tend to just leave star reviews. But anyway, um, so this is about a young trans man in Victorian New York who is a silversmith, and his sister is approached by a quilter to make her lace for her quilts. And uh, the silversmith and the quilter, two craftspeople, the craft of love, you get Aww. it? Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> um, are, you know, they, they develop a, an easy rapport and think that something more can come of that. Um, but she is hesitant because she has had her heart broken before and isn't sure if she wants to dive into that again or even if she wants a long-term relationship with anyone or just, you know, good friends. So The Craft of Love is a very short, very sweet and quiet also story of the two of them figuring each other out. I think that's a great recommendation. I actually almost talked about The Doctor's Discretion also by E.E. Ottoman for this uh, particular discussion. Um, So I'm glad that you uh, managed to to find, you know, a way to highlight a fantastic author. And my only other book that I will uh, mention um, for this is one that I can't remember, honestly, if we've talked about here or not, but it's a book called Love on My Mind by Tracy Luce. Um, And Mm -hmm. it's a good fit for the category of a book that is written by or about someone that identifies as neurodiverse. Um, And Tracy Luce does not identify as neurodiverse, but I believe she has a son who is autistic. And she wrote this book in part um, because she wanted to put more happy ever afters out in the world for characters who are um, on the spectrum. And so her hero uh, in this book is he's, um, I think it's Adam is a, he has Asperger's, but he's also this gorgeous tech genius. And so um, <laughs> it's like, you know, someone like Steve Jobs was incredibly attractive and also had a difficult time 
promoting his products because of his neurodiversity, uh, then you would have Adam. And so the heroine is brought in to help him launch his most recent product. The problem is he does not know that that is what's happening. And so um, she kind of takes this job because she needs to, um, which is, you know, I mean, for a few different reasons, she's trying to prove herself and etc. And so she takes this job with the condition that she like can't he can never know that that she was brought in for this specific reason. So she crafts this whole plot about living near him and striking up a friendship and blah, blah, blah. The problem is Chelsea, the heroine, does not plan on falling in love. And then she does and the two of them uh, fall for each other. It's a whole thing. And it's, it's a great um, it's a great love story, of, you know, that features someone uh, who is who does identify as neurodiverse and uh, sort of the challenges that that involves to the couple. But also, it's about more than that. It's also about the fact that, frankly, she's not been entirely honest with him. And she didn't think it was going to be a big deal. And her one of his best friends is part of the charade and all of it. So it's there are a lot of kind of interesting relationship issues. The whole series is actually really great. This is the first of a of a three book series. Um so I would encourage you to check all of them out. But if you are looking for a book uh that will fit that category of the Read Harder Challenge, Love on My Mind by Tracy Lovesay is a is a great option. Awesome. And I don't I also don't remember if we've talked about that book here before, but I really loved that book and could tell that she had done a lot of research and you saying that um she perhaps has a son who is autistic helps e- explain some of some of where that knowledge came from. But also, you know, she could have just been a really good researcher. I don't yeah. know. And I think I I believe I read that in the acknowledgement section of the book. So, take a look there if you are looking for uh something that will help you connect to it. And I I think is that I think that brings us to the end of of this of this week's episode of One in Romance. I think it does. Look at that. Yeah. So <laughs> let us know what you thought of Thirsty and if there are things that uh, we should mention next time around that we didn't get a chance to discuss this time. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Trisha Haley Brown with no O. Uh, that's <laughs> not a full. You guys understand it's fine. Uh, and I am on Instagram <laughs> as Trisha Haley Brown with an O. So that is me. And I am on Twitter at Jess is reading all one word and on Instagram at Jess, Jess underscore is underscore reading. And the underscores also are not spelled out. But again, you guys, you guys have gotten it out of this. We're, we're 27 episodes in. You guys have it figured out. <laughs> You've, you have it figured out. Yeah. So we are excited to hear from you. Uh, let us know what you think. Let us know what you are reading for Read Harder, especially in the romance categories. And I think until next time, that's it for us. That's it. Happy reading. Happy reading, everybody. Bye.